and he heard my plea. He miraculously raised my brother from the dead. Oh, the fountain of compassion of Christ overflowing from his heart for me. All right, would you turn to Mark 14? Mark 14, verses 1 to 3. We'll be going through three verses this morning. And what a blessing it is to go back and resume the Gospel of Mark. We're here at Saving Grace Bible Church, committed to verse-by-verse expository preaching. And what we do is we take one book at a time and dissect every passage from beginning to end. And in uh, so doing, uh, what we do is that we let the Word of God speak to us in every topic, in every theme. Um, that we uh, come across whether we find that topic appealing or not. We just allow the Word of God to dictate to us how to live our lives. And um, though uh, we needed to take some time off uh, of the Gospel of Mark, and we did travel through a journey in the Scripture in order to explain um, and understand the particular prevalent issue uh, that has affected us, uh, but yet the gospel of Mark is our home. It's our base and we return back to our home today. So Mark, um, chapter 14, verses one to three. But before we even, um, begin to read this, uh, passage before us, uh, because it's been so long since we have heard any message in the gospel of Mark, I do want to take you back, uh, to the purpose of why Mark wrote this gospel in the first place. Um, well, it was 62 AD when um, Nero, the emperor, he declared the global and fearsome persecution against all Christians. And it was like uh, you would be sitting with your family at a park somewhere having a picnic or maybe uh, going to your work and all of a sudden you hear chanting and you look from afar and you find priests carrying um, an altar uh, with um, incense in their hands and uh, burning incense. And and you look at the altar and there's an icon of Nero, the emperor, and surrounding those priests will be Roman soldiers. And then they, you would find uh, everyone standing up and coming and lining up and one by one would pay homage to Caesar before his icon. And all you needed to do is to say, Jesus is Lord. And you have defied the law of the land. And you've just insulted the Roman emperor. And the penalty of this was death. There are people, Christians dying in many different ways. You have those that were dipped in tar and lit up and then uh, hung in a, on a stick somewhere in an imperial garden. And uh, Nero would light up those Christians and uh, in the middle of the night his imperial garden would look magnificent except for the screaming of those Christians that have been tortured, burning to death or perhaps you would be served as a breakfast to lions, hungry lions where you would be uh, wrapped up in uh, animal skins and thrown um, and chased around by wild hungry beasts uh, while all those pagan worshippers sitting in the Colosseum uh, watching and being entertained as you getting eaten alive or perhaps being beheaded. So that was 
the setting at that time. Can you even imagine how hard it must have been to be a Christian during those years? I mean, we are spoiled. We are really spoiled. Just for saying that Jesus is Lord. I mean, just imagine what kind of fear that would have filled these people. The losses that they would have had to suffer. Children, wives, businesses. All of that was just basically daily life. It was just part of their lives. And it was a pressing reality that they had to experience every day. Now, what a, what a heart-wrenching it must have been if you were a Christian at that time. I mean, how would you um, take it when, when that happens? I mean, wh- wh- where would you find courage to, to be able to stand against uh, the tyranny of Nero and uh, find joy to take side with uh, early Christians and before even hungry lions? It must have been very, very challenging time. But more importantly, if if you were Mark and and you needed to write the gospel or something in order to encourage those Christians to stand against this persecution, what would you have written? How would you encourage them? To not only die for Jesus, but to actually say, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better thing. How would you encourage such Christians who are experiencing such persecution? Well, for Mark, it was very simple. Very simple. He just presented who Christ is to them. And he let him take care of the rest. Because when those early Christians knew who Jesus would truly was at that time and always and what he did for them his blazing light of glory blinded their fear in fact uh, we e- we uh, hear in early Christians history um, that they went marched forward to their persecution rejoicing singing hymns Knowing Christ led these mere humans to be as courageous as lions. And likewise, brothers and sisters, the joy of knowing Jesus Christ will give us strength to endure any kind of oppressions that we may experience. And so Mark, he presented um, Jesus in his gospel account as the Son of God who is worthy to die for. And today's passage is not an exception to the rule. Because Jesus in his encounter with the religious leaders and this godly woman that we'll know about soon, Mark highlights to the persecuted Christians in those uh, uh, days of Rome and down through the ages, even to us here today, that to worship Christ sacrificially in the face of opposition is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. And Mark will show us that even in the midst of hatred and in a, in a rise of animosity towards Jesus, that Jesus is still worthy for our fervent love and his supremacy deserves our devotion. And this is the purpose of this message. 
that no matter the fiery trials that we would face, we must encourage one another that to stand our ground, to hold the line, as they say, to freely and joyfully, sacrificially worship the supremacy of Christ because he is worthy of such adoration. So with that being said, let's start reading from verse 1. And I'll be reading to verse 9. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. And I was saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a right of the people. And while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And I was scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you. Whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could, and she has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Well, just to set the scene, little time for the background. This is Tuesday Passion Week. Two days earlier, Palm Sunday, this is when Jesus uh, went into Jerusalem triumphantly. He prophesied the destruction of Israel by cursing the fig tree. Then moving forward, Monday, Jesus cleansed the temple. Of, of all those Jews that were buying and selling in the house of God. And then today, Tuesday, Passion Week, and while Jesus was teaching the crowds for the very last time, he, he entered into these uh, public debates with the religious leaders. And through the debates, Jesus easily, cleverly, he exposed the hypocrisy of those religious leaders before the watching crowd. And once their masks fell off before everyone to see, he passed the severest judgment upon those religious leaders, those false teachers, those self-righteous leaders of his time, of his days. Well, this marked the end of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus would do no more preaching out in the open. And he gave his back to the temple. He walked away never to enter it again. And at that moment, it was, he declared a complete and utter rejection of the temple and the sacrificial system. Shekinah glory has left the temple. 
Well, <clears throat> then after Jesus exited the temple, he walked down the mountain, Temple Mount, crossing the valley, climbed up the mountain of olives, and it's on, the, on that Mount of Olives, right at the top. While he was sitting down with the rest of his disciples, Jesus gave the longest discourse he has ever given in the Gospel of Mark, and it is regarding the end times. Thirteen sermons later, and after have, uh, we have dissected every word in uh, Mark 13, now we come to the end of the Olivet Discourse. We're still at the top of the Mount of Olives. We didn't move far. But the good news is that we have officially been up to date with where we're at. The outline for today, so we can follow um, uh, the passage. Um, number one, the uh, commemoration of the Jews. Number two, the conspiracy of the leaders. And number three, the consecration of a follower. So we start with the first one, the commemoration of the Jews. We're more specifically, really, the commemoration of the feast. And we read in the first verse, it says, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. Now stop right there. Well, what does that mean? Well, what's the Passover and unleavened bread? Well, the Passover was one of the most important um, Jewish feasts. It was observed to remind the Jewish people of how God delivered the people of Israel from Egypt. You recall the night when, when the angel of death passed over the homes that were marked with the blood of the lamb. So that night, if a home um, didn't have the blood of the lamb sprinkled around the doorposts, then the angel of death would enter into this home and he would slay the firstborn son. However, on the other hand, if the blood of the lamb was sprinkled, then the life of the firstborn son would be spared. Well, obviously, this is a visual aid that pointed to um, the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. And it was commanded by God from that point onwards to be celebrated every year to celebrate the Passover. That was the Passover. Now, what about the unleavened bread? Well, the next day, immediately, um, uh, if you recall, at the Passover, uh, after the Passover at the crack of dawn, um, the Israelites quickly, they fled from Egypt. And they were in such a rush um, that they didn't even have time to bake their bread properly and let it rise and all the rest of it. So what did they have to do? They had to bake their bread without um, yeast, which is leaven. and. On the heel of celebrating the Passover, God commanded them to celebrate a feast called the unleavened um, bread. And it meant to be a week, a week's feast. So in total, you've got the Passover and you've got a seven days of uh, the feast of the unleavened bread. In total, it will be eight days. Now, because of how tightly connected the Passover to the unleavened bread feast, um, the Jews, what they did was they combined the two together and they called it the Passover feast. This is important when you read the scripture. 
you understand what the Passover feast means. It's the Passover plus unleavened bread feast, uh, eight days in total combined, and they call them Passover feast. Now we read and it says, um, the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. So there was a massive celebration that was about to break out. And I want you to feel what it was like at that time, two days before that Passover feast. Now every male, Jewish male, over the age of 12 was required to celebrate this eight days Passover feast. So that would come from every corner of Israel and many come from even outside of Israel and they travel to Jerusalem and historians tell us that sometimes it would reach up to three million pilgrims that flocked to the city just prior to the festival. Now that there aren't houses to accommodate this number of people so most of them camped surrounding the Temple Mount. You can just imagine the atmosphere at that time. There were trumpets that were blowing, fires lit up, tens of thousands of animals were about to be slaughtered. The smell and the noise of those lambs and the animals would fill the whole city. And in the midst of this huss and buzz, while people are preparing for the Passover feast, the religious leaders had something more important that they were preparing for, and that is the murder of the real Lamb of God. While everyone is getting ready to celebrate what it may look like the coming of the Messiah, the religious leaders were conspiring to kill the Messiah. So we come to the second point, the conspiracy of the leaders. And we continue reading and it says the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. So we've got here chief priests and the scribes together they're, met, they're considered to be the religious leaders or, or you call them the Sanhedrins. And those religious leaders, they were the most decent people in all of the Jewish nation. They were the most respected people. They were the most righteous people in the eyes of men. But in reality, they were cold-blooded murderers. They were assassins. And please note what it says. It doesn't say they sought to kill him. No, it says they were what? Seeking. They always hated Jesus. They always wanted his blood. Now, please note something else. Notice how they wanted to kill him. To seize him by what? Stealth. That speaks of deception. They were cunning. They were deceiving and deceivers. These leaders... Let me just give you just a quick background. They were full of themselves. They, they were drowning in their own pride. And they were thirsty to control the nation of Israel. So what did they do? They always waved their flag of self-righteousness so that they get the praise of man. They wanted people to follow them. 
They were the heavyweight champions of external worship. But in reality, and in their heart, they were void of real, genuine love for God and for people. They were utterly corrupt from the inside. They were like black crows pretending to be white doves. Jesus called them savage wolves in sheep clothing, Matthew 7.15. Blind who lead the blinds, Luke 6.39. Whitewashed tombs, Matthew 23.27. And because Jesus in, in every turn, he uncovered their mask of hypocrisy and revealed their ugliness of their self-righteousness, oh, they hated him. And Jesus was high in their hit list. He was the most wanted son of God in all of Jerusalem. He, he disrupted their security. He exposed their hypocrisy. He opposed their authority. So they put a target on his back and they wanted to gun him down. How vile, how wicked is self-righteousness. How heinous is that passion for control. Brothers, I plead with you, even before we finish that point, may it not be among us. May any self-righteousness in us would be burnt. May we never ever desire to climb the throne of the Most High and rob God of His crown of control and sovereignty. This crown must be alone on the head of the Almighty. We must never be passionate in pursuing control, controlling situations or others. We must never, ever enjoy or fall in love with our self-righteousness, brothers and sisters. Anyway, when the wickedness of man crosses cross path, the Son of God, there is no neutrality. No neutrality neutrality either repent towards jesus or a person would want to put an end to jesus and that's exactly what they wanted to do but there was a problem we read verse 2 for they were saying not during a festival otherwise there might be a right of the people well jesus popularity at that point has reached its zenith the common man by this time was swept away by Jesus' authority, by his miracles and his leadership. And, and, and it was a national festival. And during that time, no doubt it would have generated, um, patriotic zeal. Millions of, of Jews would have, would have wanted to overthrow Rome by that time. Any wrong move by these religious leaders, and it would have caused an uproar. It was too risky. So they didn't want to take any chances. So the, the, in their devel devilish plan, th they conspired to wait until everybody would go home. And then, and only then they would ambush Jesus. They would arrest him, but only after the festival. Why? So no one would know about Jesus' death. 
What a wicked plan. They wanted to murder Jesus in the dark. So, so that no one would know. No one would find out. But God had a different plan, didn't he? What an amazing God that we worship. He sent him Judas. He changed her evil plot. And Jesus died in the very day when Jerusalem was most full of people. And the death of the Son of God has been the most broadcaster's death, the greatest publicized death. And it was so important. It was the highest of importance, death. The best breaking news ever that has ever been proclaimed in all of human history. Aren't we glad that the world we live in is controlled by our loving and powerful God, not puny politicians? God turned the worst murder plot ever to be the greatest blessing ever known to man. They wanted to end Jesus' ministry, not realizing that they helped to establish it. They crucified Jesus as a criminal, but even through the cross, God made this Jesus to be even more glorious. J.C. Ryle, he comments on this, and I can't describe it any better than he did. And he says this, there is comfort in all this for true Christians. They live in a troubled world, troubled world and are often tossed to and fro by anxiety about public events. Let them rest themselves in the thought that everything is ordered for good by an all-wise God. Let them not doubt that all things in the world around them are working together for their Father's glory. Let them rest. Let them know. Brothers, sisters, we must be comforted in this truth that our Father in heaven, He's in absolute control. No matter what man decides to do, no matter how wicked the plan may be, God is in charge, not man. He is sovereign. He's in absolute control over all circumstances of our lives. Even the worst kind of evil, if God has was able to turn the worst kind of crime in human history to be the best event in all of human history. What is your evil that you're going through or the evil that I am going through? God is able. He is caring. He is loving. He is all wise. Let us rest in this fact. Amen. Well, now the narrative takes a turn. And Mark now wants to, wants us to draw a contrast between these wicked, evil leaders and the godly woman, a follower of Jesus. Those leaders hated him. She hailed him. Those leaders, they wanted to crucify him. She wanted to crown him. They loathed him. She loved him. 
And Mark wants all of us to identify with this woman and to emulate her extravagant love for Jesus. So we'll come to the third point now, the consecration of a follower. So we looked at the commemoration, the conspiracy, and now the consecration. So we read verse 3, it says, While he was in Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper. Now, Bethany, if you recall, um, this is where Jesus stayed uh, leading up to the Passover feast. Uh, in John chapter 11, verse 8, it tells us that Bethany was only two miles away from Jerusalem. So it's a short walk. And this, in this Bethany is the house of the some of the most um, closest friends to Jesus, if you recall, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And it says there, at the home of Simon the leper. Now, there are, there are some observations that we need to understand before we go any further. Um, number one observation is that Simon the leper, uh, he's not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. So we do not know anything about him other than the fact that he was a leper. But now, at the time when he invited Jesus over, he must have been healed. Uh, if he was still a leper, according to the ceremonial law, he would have been still outside of the city. But the fact that he's in Bethany, at the comfort of his own home, and he's hosting a party, it means that he must have been healed from his leprosy. That's the first observation. Second one. Now we know that at the time of Jesus, leprosy was an incurable disease. There's no way that you would have been cured once you had it. And so the only explanation that, that, um, he was healed, it would have meant that it was Jesus that miraculously healed him. The third observation. If you think about it, it would have been such a, a great intimacy between Jesus and this Simon the leper. Because if you can just imagine what it would be like for Simon to be an outcast as a, as a, a leper, ostracized outside of the city. And even when, when he wanted to come into the town in order to look for some uh, scraps of food, he would have cried out, unclean, unclean, so people would move away from him and would not touch him or come in contact with him, even his closest relatives. Then Jesus comes along and then he heals him. I mean, can you imagine the gratitude that filled Simon's heart? How he was forsaken, unwanted, unwelcomed, and then Jesus comes and he heals him. This might explain why Simon invited Jesus over to be a guest in his house to show him appreciation. In fact, as we continue reading, Jesus was treated with honor. It says he was reclining at the table. This uh, posture, this position, it would have meant that he was getting prepared for dinner. That's how they used to eat meal, reclining at the table. Now, final observation which I believe is also important, is that in John 12, 
it tells us that Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, they were part of this dinner party. And in verse 2 of John 12, it tells us that Martha was serving. Well, for Martha, for Martha to be serving in, in Simon's home and all his siblings were there, it would have meant that Simon was a close relative to this family. We, we don't know. Nobody knows. Like I said, Simon the leper is not mentioned in the Bible anywhere, but it could be since Martha was serving at that place that he could have been her, her husband or it could have been uh, their father. We don't know what the relationship was, but whatever it was, just imagine what the conversation would have been at that time or, 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 or the, the environment, what it was like at that time. You know, Jesus was reclining at the table among the people that loved him the most, the disciples. Um, in John 12, 2 tells us that Lazarus was reclining at the table, obviously somewhere with Jesus Christ. There's no tension at all. Everything is nice. And, and, and I have no doubt in my mind that at that time, because this took place after Jesus rose him from the dead, I have no doubt that one of the disciples would have even asked Lazarus, hey, can you please tell us what was it like to come to life after being dead for four days? Or what happened on the other side of death? We have no idea, but, you know, it is a little speculation, but I don't think it's far from the truth. And while everyone was relaxed, chilling out, they were all caught by surprise. Something shocking that took place. No one has ever forgotten about this. We read, and it says, There came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. Now, Mark doesn't tell us the name of this woman, but we know from John 12, 3, he tells us that it was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And what did she do? It says here that she got an alabaster vial. Now, what is an alabaster vial? It was a, a bottle made out of uh, marble. In fact, it was Egyptian mar marble. It was an expensive uh, bottle. It had a long neck and it had a small opening. And that is so that when you, you tip it over and you begin to uh, pour out what's inside the bottle, it would uh, slowly, um, uh, it would be slow dripping whatever inside the bottle. Obviously, because if that bottle was expensive, it would have meant that whatever was inside the bottle would have been also expensive. And this bottle here now, in fact, it tells us uh, it had pure, undiluted nard. Again, nard, what's nard? Um, it was a fragrant oil imported from India. Um, and because of the large distance that a person would have had to travel to get this oil from India all the way to Israel, it made it very expensive. How, how expensive? Well, it tells us in verse 5 when the disciples were complaining and in between and within that verse, it says over 300 denarii. 300 dinars, that, that was a lot of money. If, if you have saved every penny and did not spend anything at all, the 300 dinari would have been uh, a yearly 
wage. So equivalent to, I don't know how much, maybe 80 grand or something, uh, yearly salary. So it would have been about 80, 82, um, uh, thousand dollars. 82,000, 80,000. And Mary grabbed this expensive bottle and it tells us there she broke the vial and poured it over his head. So Mary is not interested in giving drips and drabs of this oil unto Jesus. No, she's not a stingy follower of Christ. So what did she do? She snapped off the neck of the bottle and she poured the entire bottle out. Here it tells us over Jesus' head. But in John 11, 2, it says this, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. So not only did she pour this expensive oil on Jesus' head, but this oil was now running down along Jesus' body and spilling onto his feet. And then what Mary did, she grabbed her hair like it was a piece of cloth and she started wiping his feet. She just showed just an amazing, unmeasured devotion. Such an extravagant, sacrificial love to the Lord Jesus. In fact, Jesus commended the way Mary adored him in verse 9. If you read verse 9, it says, <clears throat> Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be speak, spoken of in memory of her. Jesus never said this about anyone of his time. Never. Wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. It's as to say that what Jesus is saying here, what he wants us to do, that every time the gospel is preached and her story is told, that he wants people to rise up and, and give her a, a round of applause for the amazing display of her devotion to Christ. Her love for Christ was profound. It runs deep. It was a real kind of love. Especially when you contrast it with the surrounding hatred towards Jesus. It was a beautiful praise in the face of ugly threat. Good courage in the face of bad criticism. Excellent adoration in the face of terrible abomination. Well, I want to finish with two lessons, two applications, two observations about Mary that we can study, learn, and Lord willing that he would give us strength in order to apply them in our lives. We want to look at her demeanor and her devotion. Her demeanor for Jesus. 
or towards Jesus and her devotion towards Jesus. First, her demeanor. Whenever Mary is mentioned in a scripture, she's always mentioned sitting at the best place ever known to man. Luke 10.39, Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. John 11.32, Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet. And in the parallel account of today's passage, in John 11 verse 2, Mary wiped his feet with her hair. And Mary had such affection, devotion towards Jesus, that she wanted to be so close to him, so near to him, that it's mentioned that she always sat at Jesus' feet. Now, what does it mean to sit at Jesus' feet? To sit at his feet, it means that his feet is our resting place. It is our oasis. It's our refuge. To sit at Jesus' feet, it means to openly acknowledge who he is. That he is our Lord that he is our master and we are his slaves, that he is our teacher and we are his students. And that we are hanging on every word that falls out of his mouth. To sit at Jesus' feet, it means that our eyes are open to behold his beauty more vividly, that our ears are to be receptive to his voice more clearly that our nose to smell the aroma of his love, the fragrance of his compassion more intensely. To sit at Jesus' feet, it means wherever he goes, we are to follow. We always want to be in his shadow, ever listening to his teaching always meditating on his glory, reflecting on his supremacy, understanding his will, trusting him, obeying him, follow him. I would to God that we would be like Mary. I would to God that we always try to squeeze ourselves to find a room to sit at Jesus' feet. I pray that this Mark's Saving Grace Bible Church. That if people want to find where we are, that just, they get told, oh, look at where Jesus' feet is, uh, are at, and you'll find Saving Grace Bible Church there. Well, that's, that's her demeanor. That's her place. And Jesus said that it will not be taken away from her. Now we look at her devotion. Was such exceptional. Her dedication to Christ was second to none. Now, unlike the spiritually blinded and um, deaf religious leaders who didn't really know the person of Christ, and so they hated him and they wanted to kill him. Mary, on the other hand, 
She was a recipient of waves upon waves of the love of Christ. Jesus opened her heart and then he drowned this woman in a tsunami of his mercy and grace. There's no doubt that Mary started reflecting on what Jesus did for her and for her loved ones. And she would have said in her mind, well, Jesus graciously healed Simon. Jesus saw my sobbing over the death of my brother Lazarus and he sat there with me and he started weeping with me. How true the scripture says when the scripture says in my affliction he was afflicted and he heard my plea. He miraculously raised my brother from the dead. Oh, the fountain of compassion of Christ overflowing from his heart for me. As you would know that she just tasted and she's been feeling that compassion of Christ and how Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And she would have thought, well, I believe in him. He is my treasure now. He is my savior now. In Jesus, there is forgiveness for me. In Christ, there is eternal life for me. And there is a, a river of, of love gushing out of Jesus' heart for me. And I began to experience it ever since he saved me. That Jesus is my lowly and gentle Savior, and I want no other but him. And as Mary's soul began to be filled with the glory of Christ, and as she began to drink more of his mercy, his grace, his compassion, his love, she couldn't keep all that in. How could she? So her heart started to swell and bubble up with adoration. And her adoration to him had to give way to sacrificial devotion to Christ. Mary now was filled with praise and ready to explode. A burst of genuine worship for Christ, a stream of authentic gratitude was flowing now from her heart to her Savior. So what could she do? Well, she looked for a, an 80 grand worth of bottle and got that bottle and cracked it open and emptied it all in Christ. You know, for a million years, she wouldn't have been able to earn it because she's a woman. It must have been something that she inherited. But she would have said, Jesus is worthy of all my possession. No price that is too high to pay. Nothing I own that is too expensive for me to offer it to my Savior. All I have is yours, Jesus. Please note. Let us pay attention to her devotion. She didn't get that money 
And then she paid it to support a ministry or a program where she can be praised by man or somehow control the outcome. And if I give more uh, to this ministry, I will have more outcome. None of that. No. She humbly offered it all to Jesus himself as to say, Jesus, you're in control of ministries. You're in control of all the programs. As for me, I just want to delight in praising you, in honoring you. Brothers, sisters, to, to show our gratitude for Christ, we must not settle for just worshiping him. May I say, we must sacrificially worship him. That is the only way to put Christ's worth on display. We don't put Christ's worth on display when we obey Christ and adore Christ out of convenience or when it costs us but just a little bit. No. We put Christ's worth on display when we adore him sacrificially, when it hurts us, yet we do it joyfully. The best devotion to Jesus Christ, to even know, and while there is animosity, hatred, oppression from every corner, yet we are compelled willingly to abandon all, to forsake all, to renounce all, that leads us to give all to Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, what an example of true devotion that is stemming out of proper demeanor. Lord God, let us be known to be a church that will be sitting always at the feet of your son, Jesus. Let the world say as they may, but let us hold tightly to the feet of the one who died for us and rose again. And while we're there, Lord, would you open our hearts to see the immense love you have for us and that you would instruct us, Lord, to respond to this amazing love that you have by laying everything at your feet, Lord. Oh, we need you, Lord. We need you to do just that. And this is the portion that will never be taken away from us. In the midst, in the midst of trials, hurt, persecution, oppression. Let us focus our eyes upon your son, Jesus, and chain our hearts to his heart so that our hands and feet and our eyes would follow and that we would gladly give up everything for your son, Jesus. 
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.